power on. Charging capacity 77%. Cycling converters, booting disc. File access granted. Experience has been authorized. Upload complete. Executing. So this is um, Rogue Philosopher and this episode is filled with spoilers. So, uh, so the episode of Black Mirror that I'm going to be discussing and giving a, um, a well-educated but pretty unorganized uh, analytic critique. Uh, I can certainly approach this from several different angles at, at, uh, throughout, and I probably will take three or four different perspectives if I can. Uh, the episode, Black Mirror, it's called White Christmas. Um, it's three interwoven vignettes. Um, I don't know if there are recurrent characters in all three of the stories at once. I mean, I know there's the, the across episodes, there, there are those guys watching in the bar. Those same guys were watching in uh, uh, the first episode. Oh, what was it called? I don't remember now. I don't know. I don't think there really are, um, except for Matt himself. So what's happening here? These two men are in a winter cabin. Don't know where they are. I don't know if they're at the North Pole, if they're in the, the Tyrol somewhere, way up in the mountains. I, I don't know. Uh, why are they there? Well, I don't know. They, they, is it a weather station? I don't recollect them ever actually saying what the facility was designed to do. So these two men, it turns out, have been in this post for five years. And, oh, this is only, it's only tangentially uh, uh, applicable or appropriate. But Matt is an American, you know, just accentless entirely. Most characters on Black Mirror, any episode, any given episode, they're mostly uh, British or Australian or Irish or something to that effect. It's very rare. Um, so that in and of itself is a, is a structural component that I'll probably go back to later on. So uh, these three men are in this winter cabin. Or no, two men, I say, rather. Uh, Matt, who apparently is more extroverted, uh, friendlier. He's not reticent. He's not locked up in himself. He's an American. Joe is a, is a, a Brit. Uh, I think more or less ostensibly from London. But so they've been in this cabin, cooped up in this cabin, this winter cabin, five years. And Joe is finally, you know, Matt is finally challenging Joe on why they haven't really spoken to each other much in the last five years. And they exchange a few pleasantries and Matt says to Joe, well, that's the most we've talked in the last five years. So who knows what they're up there for? It's never clearly delineated until the very, very end. Now, Matt wants to get to know Joe better. He must feel uncomfortable being up there and that. Well, can you imagine having a coworker for five years trapped in a perpetual blizzard in God knows where? Uh, five years go by and you barely exchange a word. That's kind of nightmarish. So Matt would like to remedy that. He's making a meal, I think a late lunch or something. He's doing everything he can to be warm. He's not unkind at this stage in any way to Joe. Uh, although Joe 
is in the in the beginning he's initially polite you know but by the end that he arcs completely to you know an emotional wreckage it is utter disaster um, but we're not sure now three stories are told as their vignettes they're interwoven uh, acts vignettes like uh, depending on the breakdown, you could consider each of the three vignettes an act in and of itself. Um, although there's further ways to subdivide uh, the scenes as they unfold. Um, but that's a little technical, and I'm, I'm drifting into my film studies background. And the model that my teacher taught me was straight from him. He, there's no, not really any books that say the way I was taught to measure screenplays. Now, ordinarily in cookie-cutter Hollywood, it's a three-act play with a, a conclusion. The structure is, is painful. So first 15 minutes, you're inciting incident, okay? Then your first reversal, you know, the guy wants to get the girl, but he loses her, okay? Your second reversal, he's not so sure he loved her anyway, but for some other reason, he has to go back out to get her, have to find her, to hunt her down. And then the third act, the reversal is, uh, she actually is in love with him. A little like Sleepless in Seattle, right? Uh, you know, those three acts, right? Three major acts. You no, know, Shakespeare's plays more or less had five most of the time. If you break down a movie or a show uh, into its smaller component parts, you can theoretically argue what constitutes a full act or what constitutes a block of, of scenes uh, in, in a small subchapter of the, of the, of the work. Um, so all we know in the beginning is that Matt is the more gregarious of the two, and he's trying to get Joe to come out of his shell a bit. And in order to gain his trust, uh, he decides to share with Joe um, some of his moments wherein he fell short or, or in some manner or other screwed up. Uh, but he didn't tell all. He, he told a good bit to Joe, but again, you learned at the very, very end, he didn't tell the whole truth in it necessarily. And so there are three vignettes. He's an American, Matt's a confidence man. He's a, you know, kind of an alpha male type, you know, entrepreneurial. I don't remember if he's taking any drugs, but I mean, he, he just comes across as this, the CEO or a really confident, even more than a salesman, uh, more confident. And the first vignette finds him uh, connected to a young man at a corporate Christmas party. A very young, very awkward uh, worker in this party. He wants to get himself a girlfriend. So Matt's initial career was to train men how to become more desirable by women. How to become irresistible. How to win them over. You know, there's like this, all these formulae that he's telling Matt, uh, Matt is telling him to do. I don't remember his name. I think it's Charlie. I don't know. You know, but the guy's, the guy's kind of a nerdy guy, uh, socially inept, you know, but for all that kind of a sensitive soul, um, the Matt doesn't really give a damn. He just, he, you know, give me, you know, like any, there's a lot of these around here in the country, you know, in the U S I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that out there. Dating advice, support, uh, training, assertiveness training for the, you know, so the reason why this is so dark uh, for Matt to start out with sharing this with Joe 
is because he, he literally is behind the eyes of, uh, of the young man. He can see through his eyes. And what the man looks at, that's what Matt sees on, on his display, his heads-up display, or is it a, like a VR helmet or something that he's, he's wearing. Um, and he coaches. You know, he, he helps guide him through lying to the other co-workers because he's, of course, a gatecrasher, right? Uh, and as it transpires, to, to everybody's shock, I'm sure, to the audience, as much as it would have been to him, a shock for us as well, when the girl turns out to be like him, very introverted, uh, dark-haired girl, and she picks up really quickly that there is something's amiss with, with this young guy. Something's not quite right. And that's obviously because he's receiving instructions from, from Matt from uh, a, a remote location. <clears throat> and those guys, you know, they're kind of hanging on. They're watching just like they were in the bar in uh, the first episode of Black Mirror. And I think it's the same guys. So it looks like he's going to get real lucky. And he, he, Matt tells him, don't worry, I'm not watching. Don't be embarrassed. I, 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 don't, I don't watch, except he did. It's one of the funniest movement, you know, exchanges in the whole uh, show. I love it. They did watch. If you listen to the descriptive video service for the blind, it, it clarifies some things that are fairly interesting. Even a sighted viewer it could benefit. It's, it's, they do a good job. So the woman finds some way of understanding that Charlie, I guess his name's Charlie, is in fact hearing voices. And he is, because after all, you know, he's got like an implant in his brain or something. And Matt's words are going right into his, through his skull into his brain or some such thing. The voices the women are hearing are quite different. They're quite, um, <laughs> quite different, incorporeal, ephemeral. The, you know, she's mentally ill, severely mentally ill. But now she's found her true soulmate and all the rest, and she's poisoning him, you know, and then killing herself. He gave her the, the encouragement, the final push that she needed to go over the edge and carry out her suicide attempt. And, of course, he goes down with her. Uh, so all these guys watching on the feed, they're witnesses to a murder. A murder that Matt facilitated. Yeah. So maybe it's a, where they are in this cabin. It's some kind of a, a, a punishment, maybe? You know, I, it's hard for me to quite fathom it. Because this isn't, this isn't Siberia. They're in... Uh, I think Matt's from California, and, and the, his client is, is from somewhere in London or something, or near London. Uh, but so accessory to murder, uh, he started out with a really beautiful wife. I think he has a daughter, two daughters, something like that. You know what? The police come and they take him away. And Joe is still reticent. And so Matt proceeds to tell a second story, which is our second vignette, and more directly applicable to today's topic, which is consciousness. And I'm going to circle back to it repeatedly, so have no worries. Uh, and I know I'm going to miss some stuff. There'll be finer details or points of, of uh, inquiry and argument that I'll miss. But um, now the second one, you learn that Matt is uh, a well-trained, high-tech computer whiz of some type, programmer, something like that. And the other service that he does for clients is in order to help 
the clients run their smart homes more efficiently. They're all loaded with computers. It takes about a week for him to create an algorithm based on her brain waves, her brain patterns and all that, to duplicate it and feed it into the machine. Now, what happens after that is that there, the, the woman in question who went in for the surgery, there's she, she's still fully human, and then there's, for lack of a better word, a simulacrum of her trapped inside the machine, trapped in the computer, built around uh, the habits of her consciousness. So this, this entity need to have no need for a body. It's just all numbers. And yet she experiences things as though she is, remains embodied and now imprisoned um, and to a degree, that, that illusion of the body would start to fall away over time. But So basically, she copied herself, did not upload herself into it. Now, that's a somewhat different topic. There's no way to upload, you know, this, like to beam me into the machine by uploading it. You know, you can't do that. You have to create a copy. Although Chris pointed out to me at one point, if you systematically replaced all my brain cells a little at a time over a 10-year period with transistors or microchips or whatever it is. When does that stop being me and start being a cyborg? At what point do I lose consciousness if it's ever lost? Uh, because there's nothing to transfer. Um, but they copy it. They call them cookies. The names of the simulacra are cookies. Now, the poor woman trapped has no idea why. Now, the first thing that I thought of is, well, if, if, if Julie, or I think his name is Julie, if she had genuinely understood the procedure, how it was going to work, what would happen, um, she didn't obviously have it in her head that solidly. I think she, she just really just wanted her computer to work and saw a facsimile of ones and zeros as something that's, you know, a program. You know, it's a program. But to the woman inside the machine, she sure as hell isn't a program. She's has a body, she has emotions, she has fear, and she has perceptions. Of course, they need to be wired into the house, you know, so she can see through the security cameras or whatever. And Matt's job is to break these simulacrum, to break them down uh, so that they'll be compliant and they'll run her smart house, which is totally computerized. Now, Chris pointed out to me that at no point does Matt ever describe to her what the condition of her doppelganger will be. He doesn't ever inform her on that. And I have to assume that part of the reason is because if the woman wakes up inside the machine not knowing she's a simulacrum and yet remembers going in to have the procedure done, you know, uh, it would make more sense. And as far as um, her identity, how does she see herself? How does she perceive herself? One would think she would have been quite a bit calmer perhaps, I can't say exactly, knowing that her uh, body is still out there living in the house, fully conscious, everything's great, everything's beautiful, and, but the one inside the machine has no, apparently no comprehension that she had ended up in the machine. They must have some, found some way to induce a short-term, is it retrograde amnesia? So, the whole episode, maybe 15, consists of Matt trying to break this woman's will in any number of ways. One of them 
is to leave them in total blackness and isolation for an indeterminate period of time because it's his discretion how long. So he can turn these dials and the subject inside the machine will experience however many years, months, days, or whatever are on that dial after he's turned the dial. Only a minute will go by out here. Uh, but a week might go by in there, or two weeks, or six. And it's very easy to, to leave her in total darkness with nothing but her screaming thoughts and her entrapment and terror. And he says at one point, Matt narrates, and he says, you know, it's a fine line between doing this right and driving someone so completely over the edge and insane they never recover uh, and aren't useful in any way to run her smart home. And the woman in her home is just very nonchalant, you know, very, she's like a upwardly mobile kind of, I don't know, business type or something, something high powered. Yeah. Um, but lacking totally in any form of, of compassion. And it's probably because he never told her. Now, that's an important element of the plot. That idea of simulacrum, experiencing time in the machine that's in no way connected to the time outside of it. So you can lock someone up for weeks, months at a time in what effectively is solitary confinement, but the deepest form of solitary confinement that there is. Now Joe is starting to feel a little better about Matt's company because Matt's opened up a little bit and he's starting to trust him. And at one point he says to Matt, you know, he said, well, that's horrible. How could you do that? That's really horrible to do to someone. And Matt said to him, well, you, you're a good man. You have a heart. You're a good man. So why don't you tell me what happened? The third story is the one that drives the whole episode. It's the important one. Um, it turns out that Joe was in a long-term relationship. I can't recall if they were married. It almost is, it's almost irrelevant. Long-term relationship, nice girl. He owns his own house. He's really successful. He's doing a great job for himself. And his wife tells him that she is in fact pregnant. And he immediately wants to have the child. He wants to raise it. He wants to uh, include it in their family. And at first, uh, Beth, I think her name is Elizabeth, she refuses. In fact, she wants to terminate her pregnancy. And it gets so heated between the two of them, the domestic disturbance. Now, everyone has these implants that you can see the world through these implants in your head, these microchips, all that. But just like on Facebook, you can block somebody out, you can unfriend them. Only in this case, when one unfriends you, you lose the ability to see them. You just have a white blur. You lose the ability to hear them. It's just gibberish. Uh, utterly detaches you from reality with concern to that person. It's a restraining order. That doesn't mean one can't still injure one of these white figures in front of you, but they block you and you're blocked from them, so they can't understand you any better. You know, like unfriending. You're off, you're on or you're off. And so their relationship crashes and burns. But he's not giving up yet. Joe's not going to give up on his kid just yet. He won't, you know, so months and months go by, a few years go by. He spies on her from outside in the bushes. He spies on his ex-wife, whatever she is, um, and their little daughter. 
And so what does he think immediately? What anybody would think? Well, that's, that's my daughter. She's keeping my kid from me. I have a right to be in her life. I'm her father. <laughs> yeah. Serendipitously for Joe, uh, his ex-wife gets killed in a train wreck. I mean, the, a little like M. Night Shyamalan there, a train wreck. Okay, and she's killed. And of course, when she's killed, immediately the it is restored. His his connection to the environment, the block is lifted. He's restored because she's dead. Now, he's not given up. He's tried to leave toys for her in the past, but he really wants to try to build a relationship with, with his daughter. His daughter. Now, before his, his great fall from grace, they were part of a social circle that had to do with whatever this company was. And in that circle, I mean, they, they seem like a very tight-knit group of friends. They know each other well, they're co-workers, etc. One of his co-workers, a friend of his as well, appears to have um, a bit of an in as far as being in relation to Joe's wife. Like, they're very close. They're closer than he'd be comfortable acknowledging. So when Joe, poor Joe, walks up through the garden, uh, walks into the house, takes one look at his beautiful uh, Asian daughter's beautiful eyes, you know, and he puts two and two together. She's not his daughter. She'd been screwing his co-worker. Why is that important? Because Joe is losing it now. And he just wants to take his daughter and, and try to eke out a life, even though she's not his daughter. She still wants... So, her father, you know, the, maybe he's an old man, like 75 or something, tries to get Joe to leave. He sends the girl away, because she's four or five years old, he sends her away to not be frightened one of the gifts that Joe had attempted to bring to her in this particular sequence around Christmas time was a snow globe. A snow globe with a cabin inside of it uh, and a kind of a, an alpine scene, you know, Norman Rockwell kind of deal. And it's a snow globe. So when the man tries to throw Joe out in a fit of furious rage, he murders the old man. Crushes in his skull with the, uh, the snow globe. So what happens then? Of course, he flees. But the little girl was upstairs and is too young to know what death is. So days go by. <clears throat> Whatever's wrong with Grandpa, he's not waking up. So she needs to go get help. And it's three, four days long snowstorm. And their house is way, way out in the country by the sea somewhere. Isolated. Sub-zero snowstorm. Like the little match girl. Kid walks out to go get help. Three or four hundred yards away from the home. Hypothermia. And another dead body. Only an innocent child this time. And he's, he, he shares all this with Matt. Believing now that he can trust Matt. They're more friendly now. They're on better terms. They're, they've both opened up to each other. But that's not at all what happens. Because, you see, the simulacrum that they'd created of Joe was being interrogated for the murders, for the, the death of the young girl and for her grandfather's murder. Uh, at one point, the jailer walks by and says, Well, you might as well stop being silent, Joe, because you told us everything. You admitted to the murder. You fessed up. Yep, you better, uh, you know, be prepared to face justice. Well, 
I'm not sure what's going through the mind of Joe, but I know what's going through the mind of the doppelganger. And so, having broken him, Matt thinks, well, that's it, I'm free and clear. I've, I've paid my debt to society, I helped you. Nope. They put a punitive block on Matt to punish him for, for accessory to murder, for all that exploitation, harassment, you name it. I don't remember all the charges. The charges in themselves aren't as important as the idea that the unfriending blocking feature that you have with everybody in the society can be maxed up to an uber level of block. So, Matt ends out the episode unable to see people around him, unable to speak to them, and they are unable to speak to him. And he's utterly cut off, he's, he's removed effectively from society, and will be that way for the rest of his life, a sort of a amplified solitary confinement. So in a nutshell, that's the episode. It deals with some of the issues of technology and ethics. The primary question underlying this is, it's not so much about AI. What it is about, though, is at, at what point do you stop being human and start being something else, and or does it matter, or doesn't it? So the simulacrum uh, has no control over their environment. So right before the cop leaves, he turns the dial on Joe so that every minute of real time out here in the world, Joe experiences a thousand years. So it's Christmas night. Let's say they leave at midnight, just for the sake of fun. I'm sure any one of you are better at this equation than I am, right? Any one of you. Midnight, Christmas Eve. So let's say it's a three-day weekend that's 72 hours, uh, a thousand years a minute times 60 minutes is 60,000 years. 60,000 times 72, I think is like, uh, you'll, you'll have to figure that out. I'm interested in the answer now, so I think you get the gist. 60,000 years per hour uh, uh, since there's 72 hours in this period. So 60,000 times 2, 0, 0, 0, 0. Uh, 12, zero, 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 zero. Um, <clears throat> yeah, 12,000 plus 7 times the same figure. So we have 12,000 years, zero, seven, zero, seven, zero times, or 72 rather, times. I think you get where I'm going. So he's trapped in that cabin with no one to speak to hearing the same song over and over and over again for what is effectively eternity. Millions upon millions of millions of years of perceived time. So, I'm not exactly an ethicist, but that's the least of the issues brought up. An ethical one. Cruel and unusual punishment, solitary confinement. Uh, sheer boredom. The absolute sheer unadulterated misery of being locked into your own thoughts. I mean, after a couple of weeks, people are messed up for a while. But he's a simulacrum. He's not real. He won't age and he won't die. So what is it, 600 million years or something ridiculously insane like that? You know, it's like the, 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 <laughs> the lifespan of Vishnu or something. It's just like millions and millions and millions of years. And during every minute of those millions and millions of years, the same song plays again and again and again. 
what happens last sequence pull back pull back pull back you see joe his simulacrum trapped in this cabin with snow coming down all around it it's the exact facsimile of the cabin in the snow globe and then you become aware of dozens like one of those little russian boxes right you open up you open the first box and there's a box in it you open that box there's another box you open that box etc 10 or 20 different boxes you open them up each one smaller than the last fitting in its its previous box until you finally reach you know well in the real world you'd run out of boxes but in the virtual world it's turtles all the way down you know it's all the way down and there's an alchemical maxim uh, as above so below that which is above is as like unto that which is below for the sake of one one thing okay a very rough from memory recitation of the emerald tablet of hermes and alchemy talks a lot about this about miniature about the grand scale of things in the cosmos and uh, the smaller scale of of what the physical attributes of one's body the organs the the sight, the hearing, the, the sensory organs. So, initially, I'm going to start with a, a commonplace, basic theological explication of, you know, and we all know this, even most of us aren't, even if we're not religious. Uh, well, younger people, maybe it's different, but people my age, you know, I wasn't exactly a churchgoer as a child, but I grew up in a world that suggested those things were real. You still could have the president saying God bless in front of, uh, you know, the audience at the State of the Union address without running the risk of being imprisoned for 50 years for, for saying the word God, as if there were one. Now, I'm, personally, I, I have come to my own conclusions about this, but I don't want to see anyone mistreated, not religious people, not a-religious people. I don't, I don't want to see any, anybody attacked. And there's been quite a, 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 a seismic shift in the last 30 or 40 years. Religions are on the wane in terms of a traditional religion that we understand as our culture, Christian culture, Judeo-Christian culture. But a new religion is rising to take its place, a far more barbarous and miserable religion. That's ideology. Whatever your political bent is, many, for many, that is their religion. Their relation to their fellow man is their, their um, religious activity. And of course, the, the dystopian, utopian, neo-Marxist types are all about egalitarian, egalitarian of outcome, not of, not of uh, opportunity. Everything being ruled by the Central Party Bureau. So like, so, Hang on a sec. I'm just trying to work my way back to where I was weaving this before. Oh yes, theology. So it's it's <clears throat> it's tricky. The soul, the concept of the metaphor of the soul, has a long, long, long history, and different tribes have different ideas about it. Oftentimes, there are levels to the soul. There are three or four levels of consciousness um, and awareness, and they have to do with consciousness of the righteousness of God or the sacred. Um, the Greeks, though, not long before the rise of uh, St. Paul, had a similar concept. They, they called it the one God. They understood that the soul trapped in, the, in this body is a piece of that. 
and hence is trying to work its way back to union with God, with ultimate union. That's the Platonic and the Neoplatonic example of the divine. Okay, it's, it's the one. Plato originally called it the good, the ultimate virtue, the aspect of virtue that from whence all other virtues flow, the good. And for Plotinus, some 500 years later, it was the one. All is one. Even though it looks like there's all these different things around us, it, it, everything's all made of the same stuff, namely divinity. And for the Neoplatonist, part of their study, their intellectual awakening and their study of different philosophers in their philosophy school is designed to enrich the soul such that it will increase its desire to unify with the bigger soul, with the intellect. So there are three levels. The one, which is indescribable. The intellect, capital I, which is the, the level of uh, enlightenment, I guess, of celestial sphere kind of stuff, middle of the sky. It's, it's, the intellect is the highest that you can get without being in a state of divine enlightenment in some manner or other. And then there's the, just the normal world, that, you know, normal consciousness, and inside of every person is, is a universe. Every person has their own, has their own world that's being played, like being inside a movie in front of them. Um, uh, hang on a second. It'll come back to me. <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. So the difficulty with dystopian is they want everyone to be just like them. And basically they're willing to enslave and or kill anybody who opposes them. Millions and millions and millions of people. So the soul, according to the, the Hellenistic model, is like... It is like a, go a little person in the machine, steering the, the mechanisms, running the brain from within. Although I understand that even though that's what Greeks talked about, that may not have been what they meant. Because we immediately presume Cartesianism, whether we are or are not Cartesian. When he said, I think, therefore I am, he laid down a gauntlet for the rest of us. And as the metaphor that we tell each other is the psyche, changes. The experiences people have change in subtle ways also. Subtle, de definitional, experiential, um, kind of that phenomena. Because there's still a mind-body problem. Even if you aren't religious and don't believe in the, the soul, as it were, everyone thinks that they're, or most everyone, is that you have two units through which you're living in the world. Your body and your brain. Your brain is pure, intellectual, beautiful, whatever you want to call it. The body is gross, it's subject to decay, it's easily deceived, gets sick all the time. You know, but the brain, for the most part, the brain is, is pretty safe and apparently not deeply connected on a conscious level. I mean, really, when, when Plotinus talks about this as well, when, you, when you're well, when you feel well, and nothing, there's no pain, there's nothing wrong with you, your body almost falls away anyway of its own accord. You're not aware of it. You, you're only truly aware of it when the, the, the consciousness is broken 
into fragments by, by illness, by pain, by cold maybe, by starvation, God knows. That's when this whole system starts to kind of totter. And now with modern science, of course, modern neurology, it's pretty clear that, and we can't make fun of him for this, it was 400 years ago, but Descartes was wrong. Your thoughts aren't who you are, and your brain is doing a hell of a lot more than you're aware of it doing a lot more. I think, therefore I am, then, is almost as useless as, as saying all is one, God is all, God is one. It's, it's, almost, it's almost incomprehensibly amorphous protean, such that you, you can't even adequately or accurately define it. But our culture, our laws are based on two contradictory poles. One of them, you're an individual, you have to take responsibility for what you've done if you've harmed someone. You have to fess up to it. You, you know, justice requires that life has a value. And if you've injured someone, you've deprived them of their quality of life, you've stolen, you've assaulted, maybe even murdered. It's such a horrific crime because the assumption is made that everybody has their right to sovereignty. They have a right to live. Um, if you go back far enough, that was built on Christian principles. Now we're, we've replaced many of those with science. Uh, psychology, for example, instead of the confessional. Psychiatry, instead of your, your uh, the, the head of your monastery or whatever it is, your, your religious instructor, whatever. It's all scientific now. And they're getting better every day at brain scans. They will figure out one day how to build this technology. Black Mirror one day will be true. It, it will happen. It's just a matter of how long will it take and how much more sophisticated does our machinery have to be to do this. And once we do it, what about, what about individual rights, personal rights? I mean, I know the word rights is a, is a word that is rendered meaningless now by uh, uh, the culture war and the turmoil that we're all in. But I mean it in the classic uh, Mills, John Stuart Mills uh, system of value. Your life has value. It has meaning. You're an individual. You're unique. There's none like you in all the world. And the, the for better or for worse, in many ways for better, of course, we're moving into an age of scientific, uh, neuropsychological, uh, neurotheological, uh, the more advanced uh, psychology, uh, theology. There's no way to say this kindly, but I'm not trying to be mean when I say this. But basically, theology is a worthless waste of time. You know, it's it's not. Uh, because its initial premise is incorrect anyway. And even if it were correct, you have a soul. Your soul is bound for heaven or for hell according to your deeds or your grace, uh, purchased in grace by the blood on the cross of, of Jesus Christ. Depending on the sect you live in, you either have responsibility for that, for getting closer to him as your Lord and Savior, or no matter what you do, you are a sinner. So building your, your objective to get to heaven on not committing sin. That's not enough. What has to happen then is, is he has come, Christ has come and paid our debts for us in advance. 
so that none of us can be trapped by this. It's in, there's a lot of these, these currents swirl back and forth, back and forth, different theologians, different analysis of these things. In the earlier days, science, philosophy, theology, law, medicine, all of these were one vast interarching discipline in society that began to fragment uh, with increasing swiftness and depth through the Renaissance, through the Baroque, the Age of Enlightenment, the Age of Reason, uh, the Romantic period, the pre-Raphaelite, you know, 20th century existentialism. Um, the theological speculations that were once our leading thinkers in the world, our psychologists, our physicians, they call the uh, uh, Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine, a doctor of the church for a reason. Because um, he isn't just talking about the Bible, he's talking about everything under the sun, you know. How the world works, how wisdom is, how to live a better life, how to be a better person, all these things. All these things. Moral ethics. It's built upon the awareness of one's value. It gives value, it gives meaning to your life where there may otherwise not be. I'm okay with where I am as far as my own stance. But so the idea then of the soul, where it tr goes into the afterlife, I'm skimming over this so dramatically swift, I'm sorry for this. I mean, all these things I can come back to at some other episode. The soul, what is it? It's, well, whatever it is, it's bound for heaven or for hell. No in-betweens, nothing. Although the Catholic Church for a long time had purgatory, where if you were too sinful to be let in at the gate initially, but you weren't like a hideous human being. You could burn off some of your sins in purgatory before being allowed to enter heaven. Uh, hell and purgatory are the same place, effectively. You're burning in fire and you're punished for your sins and you're pure. The difference is if you're in hell, you're not coming out again. But if you're in purgatory, there's a good chance that in 100 or 200,000 years, they'll let you into heaven. Okay, well, cool with that. The Greeks had their own competitive understanding of the soul. Uh, it's composed of several different components. You'd find similar in, uh, in uh, ancient Egypt, uh, in many primitive peoples, uh, indigenous peoples. In uh, certain branches of Judaism, you, you have several different layers of soul according to its closeness or to its distance from, from God. And whether or not you're closer to God or distant from Him is in accord with the mitzvah. You're following the laws of, of uh, your community. Clearly, the more you follow those laws, the more righteous you may become. The more you study, you're a great scholar, you study Talmud, Kabbalah, all these different things. Steadily on a, a, a quest for perfecting the soul in one way or another. Uh, Fraser talked about there being a bush soul. Uh, Eliade talked about in shamanism where you, in order to cure the patient of the illness, whatever that illness may be, the patient is ill because pieces of, of their soul have gone missing. So the shaman will, under the influence of tremendous atheogens and hallucinogens, they'll, they'll go in and try to find it and restore it to the person to end his illness subsequently. Oh, God. Now, 
again, I'm skimming over this so rapidly, it's, it's almost laughable. So, the first one to talk about thoughts in your head having a voice of their own, that there's, there is a separate uh, element of you, your persona. It's what you think, and your thoughts are in their own arena. And then there's the rest of you, your body, in the world. You know, it isn't elevated, it's the body. It, 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 it can do wondrous things, but in the end, it's, it's just, uh, it's on its own and it's destined to disintegrate over time. And so we have this sanctity about the, the thoughts and the mind, and the brain. That that is, and, and they've been fighting over this since the, the uh, Plato's philosophy school. Yeah. What are the qualities of men that separate us from lower animals? Because there has to be some sort of noble quality to it, or else why would we have language? Why do we have ideals and religions and beauty? Why do we have aesthetic? We know of no other, for the most part, we know of no other animals that enjoy something for aesthetic value, except the elephant that, it's on YouTube, if you want to find an elephant drawing a picture, it's kind of far out. Um, our faculty of reason, I think we overrate it. Most people aren't reasonable most of the time. But the other facet is if your emotions are part of your thoughts. In you, you can, with tremendous difficulty, change your thoughts or your emotions. Uh, but for the most part, they come upon you unbidden or as a response to some something event. You know, you're afraid, you're hurt, you're whatever, falling in love. Who knows? Um... Uh, just trying to find my place again here. This is... In Christianity, ultimately, though, the soul is it's an entity unto itself. It, it's the Holy Ghost, right? So you're not talking about different levels. You're not talking about uh, nefesh, ruah, uh, neshama. Uh, you're not talking about the Egyptians div device, dividing of the soul into different states, the physical, the animal, the divine, the one that goes ahead and ascends to the stars. Our metaphors, though, how, how our, our, our overarching cultural values also shape how we see or how we interpret what we see in the world around us. And we're conditioned by that, uh, primarily whether, you, whether one likes it or not. We have not quite reached the level yet where ordinary people are strong and confident in that they, they aware, are aware there's no divine. I think we experience the divine, for lack of a better term, sublime, something really high. It's healing. You can heal your brain. That's why these atheogens are so good for people. They help heal your brain if it's damaged. But we're all basically Newtonian Cartesian. I mean... It's it's almost like that. That's what we are by default, and it only through questioning, through engaging with your mind, how it works, how it all works, your feelings, everything else, and with great difficulty. But then and only then is it possible to uh, break free of this paradigm for a short period of time. And now, this one book I've skimmed part of it, giving an analytic description of the evolution of the the soul as a theologian from a theological perspective. And he maintains that it was St. Augustine who first initiated the idea that we can think in our, inside our head, the voices inside our head, uh, our thought patterns, our words for a reason, because 
Augustine separated out the two, but in my study of phenomenology, the reason is because speaking is a bodily action. We, we tend to lose sight of that because we're, we're just saying what we're saying and we're speaking from our source of what we interpret as truth using the language that we're born into. We're born into these concepts as surely as we're born into the language that we use. And everything, all the meanings, the nuances that come with that language. The Locke, it, when, you're, when a baby's newly born, Locke called it a tabula rosa, a blank slate. Uh, we're pre-programmed by genetics to a tremendous extent. And the first few years of life is where you construct your connection to the world automatically it's simply a nature of, of growth maturity your your consciousness evolves increasingly until you're more or less a fully formed uh, person now we think we know where our thoughts come from but we don't and we think that because on occasion we can take control of the reins you know whether it's guided meditation mindfulness whether it's writing poetry, you're, you're focusing your entire entity on the words you're using in the situation in which you're using them. But for the most part, our, our thoughts and emotions are unbidden. They invade and destabilize a lot. So whereas Descartes could say, I think, therefore I am, <laughs> I would say that very little of what you think is determinate according to who you are or who you aren't. We don't know the source of these things, and in certain elements and aspects at a, at a given time, according to your concentration of thought and your, your ability to empathize and all these other things, a higher consciousness. So this thing that they put up into the computer, the cookie they uploaded, what I will refer to as a simulacrum, a doppelganger falls right into the ideas of uh, that I was briefly alluding to about the Emerald Tablet. There's a universe inside that machine as well. Uh, a very bleak, <laughs> to be sure. Uh, the lady trapped in the smart house, I think by the end it is implied by the end that she no longer has a body. She does, She's lost her... Uh, how do I say? She's lost her perceptual construct construct okay that's what these things are they're constructs they're copies except these are sentient copies but one has to assume it doesn't have the full range of access to emotions or thoughts or whatever but it's it's close enough such that when the girl wakes up in the white room or whatever it there's an unbroken continuity for her except that she appears to not have any recollection of being copied she doesn't remember herself making that call and doing that procedure. In uh, phenomenology, it's called intentionality. Your perceptions are always connected to some other object. You're, you're always connected through and an, um, instinctive by this point understanding of the potential for uh, possibilities that this raises. How do I put it another way that makes more sense? I kind of like the uh, several examples that I used in, in my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation. Um, phenomenologists don't try to attribute interpretations 
to the phenomena they're studying, qualia. Um, they try to create an unbiased mind, approaching all these studies as if they were new, perception. That's why there's so many books in the 20th century, Maurice Merleau-Ponty's, um, oh, what was it called? I'm blanking on it. actually blanking on the goddamn thing. It'll come back to me. Where he's talking about all about perception and and the the freedom of will and the uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty. Why can't I remember this? God damn it. Phenomenology of perception, of course. Phenomenology of perception. The existentialists, the surrealists, the phenomenologists, the uh, the left bank intellectuals, they're, they're all more or less connected through uh, phil philosophy, whether or not it's in the air or whether it's behind closed doors or university. It's a very lively period for philosophy. Some might say that philosophy has never recovered and never will recover and is, is dead. And it's because of that postmodernist Uh, Marxist dialectical reasoning and to free the oppressed peoples. Most of these French guys that's what they were into. They trying to the mess we're living in now is because largely because of these guys way back when, these thinkers, who for better or worse, steered our society into a, a course of development that's in the end, very destructive to the individual, destructive to personal dignity and personal autonomy. Because they were utopians. No less brilliant for all that, but one has to understand they have an agenda. They're not just, they're not just trying to refute Immanuel Kant. They're, they're not just trying to, um, oh, how should I say? Ah. Uh, Maybe I need to smoke some more. That might do it. Keep drawing blanks. Um, oh, which is not good. Let's see what happens then. See, I should have been a hobbit. I belong in Hobbiton. That's where I belong. I belong in the Shire. Life after death. There, there is some substance that survives, some substantial thing. Um, I don't think it's even been until recently, with the exception of, of B.F. Skinner's behavioralism, which I haven't delved into much, but I know just from secondhand. The majority of these philosophical thinkers, whatever their ideological bent, are effectively uh, participating in a Christian worldview. Just even our expressions, the way we talk, you know, we, the way we build our metaphors through language, reflective of how we perceive ourselves. This woman argued that um, St. Augustine was responsible for the ultimate expression of the mind-body problem that led to Descartes in the end. with some outliers. And phenomenologists wanted to challenge behavioralism. Effectively, if behavioralism is taken too far, the, the, the one perceiving is uh, 
Bloody hell. Hang on. Mm. There's a uh, kind of a ghost in the machine. I mean, not, you're, most psychologists, psychiatrists today, you'll have to verify this for me, Chris. Uh, I don't think they subscribe to such an opinion any longer. But even as recently as 30 years ago, the mind-body problem was fully accepted as rational. Now, what people don't seem to understand, but they will, is that the brain is a physical organ. Okay, newsflash, physical organ. And the thoughts that that thing emits into our sensorium, into our experience of reality. Before the fifth century, nobody, according to this, according to the work about St. Augustine, nobody had an introspective conversation going on inside their head. That came as a later development. Now, I also am aware that uh, early in the uh, common era, mm, damn it, Emotions connote some kind of soul, but they're physical too. And then the swells of neurotransmission throughout your body alter and affect your emotions and your memories and uh, directly. That is another form of reason. Um, yeah. So it seems to me that the girl trapped in the smart house continues to be embodied because out of habit when things become habit for you the phenomenologists talk about their automatic actions according to having at a prior time learned what the purpose of this object is now let me how do I put that less philosophically and more like how we really think common sense okay according to its tool and to its purpose. In the world, we're drawn to these different things according to our awareness of their purpose. But, so if I walk by a, a tennis court, I don't play the game. I'm aware that they knock a ball over the net back and forth. But because that presents few possibilities to me, it would never occur to me to walk in uh, into the court and uh, challenge someone to a game of tennis because it's not part of my skill set. They become dangerously close. I don't think they cross the line. Dangerously close, though, to uh, supporting their primary enemy. If you're talking about automatic reflexes, you're, you're in the same territory as behavioralism now. But because it seems to reflect how we experience our reality. Hubert Dreyfus went on about this for quite some time in a number of his books and papers, uh, talking about the development of skill. bodily skill as being mastered it becomes automatic um, the the blind man's stick is an extension of, of, of his hands right and I know this uh, I, I live it every day now try and imagine you know that for the umpteenth time you don't know where your damn glasses are and you got to have your glasses so you can read but you can't find them anywhere. 
So you rip the house apart looking for the lost glasses. And in a staggering moment of stupidity, you look in the mirror and recognize that you've been wearing them the whole time. I've seen that. I've lived that though. Because if I place my cane somewhere and I forget where it is, uh, or I perceive that I must have done because I can't find the cane in its usual spot, utterly unaware of the fact that I am in fact holding my cane in my hand and using the, the guidance of my te technical skill with the cane to try to seek out where the cane went, utterly unaware that it's been in my hand the whole time. Because it doesn't feel embodied. You don't, there's a seamless connection between you and the world through the tools that you use. Heidegger talks about this, so does Merleau-Ponty, the phenomenology of perception. I understand when people are driving in their car, they don't feel like they're separate from the car so much. That that car is an extension of them, a part of them. Because according to it, your, your ability to reckon with the possible is through the medium of your skill. If I walk by a rock climbing gym, I'll just barely have an understanding of what that is. But a professional mountaineer would be fully aware of that wall, that climbing wall. You know, according to their potential to take advantage of their skill sets. It's called reckoning with the possible through the body. And our thoughts too. Uh, they're, they're embodied. They can be altered by chemicals, by drugs, by electromagnetic waves. Your emotions, your concentration is subject to these forces that can change it. But a thought is a physical action as much as, as speaking. And that before there was a time when, whenever the monks would read in their monasteries, they read out loud. Silent reading is a recent innovation. Maybe 2,000, 2,500 years on. Uh, if you believe Julian Jaynes, if you go back far enough, of course, the right hemisphere of the brain was more developed than it is now in us. And as a result of that, you hear voices in your head. In a benign way, that's the voice of your God. It's the voice of, your, uh, of the god of your city. In ancient Babylon, they had a pantheon of gods, but it isn't like our picture of the world, where our picture of the world is there's one unified god, it's in the sky, it determines everything. We don't look at smaller forces and say, well, there are departmental gods, and they control the weather, or they control the, the rivers, or, or they make the crops grow, and you have to sacrifice to these other entities so they give you a favorable crop. In most uh, religions of most indigenous peoples, if there is a sky god as we understand it, something may be lost in translation, but for them, the god has retreated above the heavens. It's almighty, all-powerful, but infinitely distant. And if only they could, they would have the power to change anything they wished, but they don't. They lack for nothing, so they have no wish. But these smaller forces can be appeased. That's what earliest religion may indeed have been, is you're trying to bargain with the world around you to not kill you. <laughs> uh, uh, i got to give you these names at the end of this yammering so you can see some of the same stuff I'm drawing from loosely. So, the, the one who brought this method of philosophizing into existence was uh, Edmund Husserl. I understand Heidegger better than I understand Husserl, but that's only because... 
Warning, power dropping to unsustainable levels. Rerouting power, failed. Upload integrity failure error 037618. Continuity loss, 23%. Emergency backup, failed. Experiential rift analysis loop failure detected. Error, 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 error.